For the past nine years, book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate reading at the Library of Congress's National Book Festival. This year, the library is proud to commemorate a decade of words and wonder at the 10th Annual National Book Festival on September 25, 2010. President and Mrs. Obama are honorary chairs of the event, which provides D.C. locals and visitors from across the country and around the world the opportunity to see and meet their favorite authors, illustrators, and characters. The festival, which is free and open to the public, as always, will be held on the National Mall from 10 to 5.30, rain or shine. And joining me today, I have the pleasure of speaking with novelist Isabel Allende. She's a Chilean-American, and uh, her work has been translated into more than 30 languages and have been bestsellers in Europe, Latin America, and Australia, selling more than 56 million copies. At the National Book Festival, Allende will talk about her latest book, Island Beneath the Sea. The novel, which is her 18th, chronicles the journey of Zarite, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, which, which begins when she is sold into slavery as a nine-year-old girl in 18th century Santo Domingo. Ms. Allende, uh, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's my pleasure. Uh, now, Island Beneath the Sea is full of intricate historical details, which isn't surprising given your prowess in the genre. What led you be, uh, what, why did you begin writing historical fiction? What drew you to that? I, I, I started writing historical fiction when I came to California many years ago because I realized that San Francisco was only 150 years old at the time, and before that, it was just a little village called Yerba Buena. And what really created the city and the splendor of, of this area was the gold rush. And so I started researching the gold rush, and I was fascinated by all the historical data that you can get, not from history books so much, as from personal letters and biographies and memoirs. So I got involved in that, and I realized that when I have a place and I have researched that place, and that time, I have a theater where I can move my characters easily. Half the work is done by the research. So I've written several historical novels. Now, how much of, of your work and the creation that you do is, is purely imagination? How much is influenced by that research? Usually the, the characters are imagined, they are fictional, and their lives are fictional. But all the, the but the setting is real. The historical events mentioned are real. I have researched them, and I am very careful with details. For example, how long will it take a horse to drive from here to there? What were the surgical methods at the war? Um, what were they wearing under the dresses? That kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. There, mm -hmm. there are historical characters mentioned, like in my new book, all the generals of the revolution in Haiti and Toussaint Louverture, and uh, the, the, what was happening in the court in France, the American Revolution, all that is historical. Now, parts of beneath uh, Island Beneath the Sea talk about hardships uh, in 18th century Haiti, and of course, it's a country that's been in the news a lot recently for hardships. Um, how did you choose Haiti as a setting for the novel? I started with New Orleans, really, because uh, I, I had written a novel called Sorrow in 2003, and, and there's a chapter set in New Orleans. So I went there to research the city and the place and where the pirates of the Caribbean had been, Jean Lafitte. And I fell in love with the city. This was before Katrina. And the, it, it's a city in the United States that has a unique flavor. It, it has a French flavor, the Caribbean flavor. It has 
um, ex excellent cuisine, music, a black culture that is striking. And then it has also voodoo and, and a magic, magic uh, feeling to it. And I thought it had all the elements for a wonderful novel. So I was going to write a novel about New Orleans when I started the I went there again, I started the research, and I realized that much of its flavor comes from 10,000 refugees that came to the city into, uh, between 1800 and 1804. That was the time of the slave revolt in what was then a French colony called Saint-Domingue. In 1804, um, they became an independent republic, the first independent republic in Latin America, the first Negro independent republic. And um, the whites that owned the plantations had to escape. And they escaped with their family and often with their domestic slaves that they trusted to several places. They went back to France, where there was no slavery, so they couldn't get there with their slaves. And they went to Cuba, and 10,000 of them went to New Orleans. Now, as you've been doing your research, have you found uh, connections between so-called historical Haiti and also modern-day life uh, on the island? Well, there, there, is, um, there, there is a connection. First of all, the, the way the society is formed. It's, um, it's a country of um, descendants from Africans and from, that came from very different places in Africa. Mm -hmm. So you, you see several, uh, they don't all look alike. It's not an homogeneous country. Also, uh, they have a violent past, uh, not only because of the revolution that lasted many years and, and cost many, many lives, but also it's a country that has been occupied by the United States and by other countries, exploited, boycotted. So it, it has had a lot of hardships, plus the hurricanes, and plus the corruption of its own government. The generals that replaced Toussaint Louverture uh, were ignorant men, very violent, most of them, and they uh, sometimes exploited their own people. So they would sell into slavery to the pirates of the Caribbean the same people that had fought for independence in Haiti. So there is a lot of corruption. Today, in this very poor country that has suffered so much, there are 300,000 slaves. They are called the Restavics, and they are children sold or given away into slavery because the parents cannot um, feed them. And these children work as domestic slaves in the most awful conditions. Many of them don't survive. Yeah. Um, now, the novel spans uh, the course of four decades. Is it difficult to cover such an expansive time in terms of your plot and your character development? Does it require a lot more intensive research? It required a lot of research, but it was not difficult because I was following the lives of my characters. So I start with Sarite when she's nine years old, and I end when she's 40. So, um, and, and there is some, some precedent before she was born also. So um, it's, it's not difficult when you follow a character. It's the life of the person. Now, uh, the main characters in many of your works are really extraordinary women, brave, um, independent, adventurous. How do you develop those characters? Do you draw inspiration from real women in your life, uh, or, or how does that happen? Well, people accuse me of having always strong women in, in my books, but I, my, my question is, have you ever met a weak woman? <laughs> I don't know if I have. <laughs> yeah, I, you would have to, to really look to find one. 
so these are women who have to fight against incredible obstacles, who are not uh, protected by the big umbrella of the establishment, and who live in the patriarchy, because we live in, 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 a, in a society that is patriarchal, in which, especially then, men have all the privileges. And it's very hard for a woman to make it, to get, to get their independence. At that time, women didn't have access to health care, education, freedom of any kind. So at least, uh, unless you were um, a, a high-class courtesan that, that would use men for her own benefit, your life was very limited. Mm. And so I have one character in the book, Violette, who is exactly that. She's a courtesan who has learned to use the only thing she has which is her beauty, and uh, and use it to have an independent and good life. But that's very rare. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to talk a little bit more about your writing process in, in general. Uh, and, of course, we've talked about the historical details in your writing, but you're also described as a writer who employs magical realism. D- do you agree with that assessment, and, and what does that mean? Um. I agree that I use magic realism in some of my books, but I cannot be defined as a, as a writer of magic realism because there isn't magic realism in many of my books. The difference between fantasy and magic realism is that fantasy is out of the blue. You never see it in real life. You never experience it in any way. For example, a, an example of fantasy would be the invisibility cloak of Harry Potter. You put on a cloak and you disappear. No mm-hmm. one has ever seen that. Mm-hmm. Now, magic realism would be invisible Indians in the Amazon. And there is an explanation. The explanation is that they paint their bodies in the colors of nature, and they walk and they move so silently and so gracefully that they can be two yards away and you don't see them. So there is an explanation for magic realism. You can, If you say... Invisible Indians, it sounds like magic realism, but there is evidence that that has happened. People have seen it, and there is an explanation. Is that uh, affected or inspired by a spiritual nature in your own life, or where does that come from? It comes from, from, from living in a, in, in, in a continent and in circumstances in which I know that life is very mysterious. There are things happen that we cannot explain, that we cannot control. Uh, and, and yet they, we have evidence that they happen. For example, premonitions, the, the fact that you sometimes have the feeling that you've been in that place, or incredible connections that you make between people or events, um, dreams, the, there are um, prophetic dreams, dreams. The, the incredible power of emotions and passions that sometimes move a society, move, move the world. Uh, we go to war for things that are completely invisible, mysterious. We go to war for fear, for, for greed, for, for things that are uncontrollable. So all of that is part of magic realism. And in, in my book, In the Island Beneath the Sea, there's an, another element that is fascinating, and that is voodoo. Voodoo. voodoo is a, yeah, it's a very interesting religion. First of all, it has one God only. And um, it, it has the law as well very similar to the saints in the Catholic Church. Each one has certain characteristics and has certain jobs to do in the spiritual world. And these, uh, during the ceremonies, the practitioners with the drums and the, and the dancing fall in a trance, some of them. 
they fall in a trance, and in trance they are mounted by the law. They become the law. So they experience the divinity in themselves. Hmm. And that is a very empowering thing. I have seen it. I have seen it in Brazil. And it is an extraordinary uh, thing to watch, the empowerment of these people who, for example, a young uh, woman in her 20s that can be mounted by Legbe, who is the law of the underworld, and then she, beca- she acts and becomes oh, like a crooked old man. And f- for the time of the trance, she is Legbe. And so uh, when, the, when these um, slaves went to war against the troops of Napoleon, the best trained troops in Europe, and they defeated them, they were convinced that from the island beneath the sea, which was paradise, Guinea, 10,000 souls would rise for each man that was fighting to help them against the soldiers. So they would go uh, with a machete and confront the cannons of Napoleon because they were empowered by religion and by the spiritual beliefs. Now, you said that in general you write your fictional works in Spanish and then they're later translated into English and other languages. What is that process like? Are you intimately involved? And and how difficult is that? I mean, I think of foreign languages where an idiom or a certain phrase isn't exactly as it would be in, say, English. Um, I I work closely with my American translator, um, Margaret Sawyer-Peden, who have translated all my books except the first one. And she sends me every 30 or 40 pages, and I check it with my Spanish. Um, I, I, I don't have to correct her English. It's, uh, the translation is always perfect. Sometimes she might miss uh, an irony or, or mm. some word that, that could be better or something like that, but it's minimal. So I trust her blindly. And what is interesting is that when I read my text in English, I correct my Spanish because I, I can see my text through the filter of another language, and I can see the problems that it may have. Now, before you were an author, you were a journalist for many years. Uh, does that background uh, play any role in your methodology? I mean, I think of the research that you do, and it, it might come in handy there. It, it, it really does come handy, because it's not only the research, how to conduct an interview, how, uh, how to... Um, go, you know, as a journalist, the question is, what happened? What happened? As a writer, the question is, why did it happen? And in the why, you get the story. Um, so I use the, the, all the skills that I learned as a, as a journalist, the efficient use of language, um, how to get, go to the point, how to try to grab the reader's attention and not let that attention drift <laughs> until the very end. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to write uh, with pressure and, and with a deadline, which is also very important. You've uh, taught at a number of American universities as well, including University of Virginia, Montclair College, UC Berkeley. How would you describe your teaching style? Well, I'm not teaching anymore, and I would say that I was a lousy teacher. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend anybody to be my student. Um, usually, I, I think that it's very difficult to, to teach someone to become a storyteller, to be a good storyteller. You can teach anybody the skills of writing. Write, you can write well if you, if you learn to write well. That's not the problem. The problem is that for storytelling, you need a certain instinct. 
Um, many people can play an instrument, but few people can play that instrument in a wonderful way. Yeah. And, and, the, and the same is with storytelling. Many people can tell a story, but, but who are the real good storytellers that you cannot teach? So did you look at a lot of the work from your students and say, this person can write, but there's just no way to teach them how to tell a story? Well, I never tell them that. <laughs> of course I wouldn't, because that would be horrible, and I may be wrong. It's very subjective. That's true. Um, but I can teach them certain skills, how to develop a character, how to create tension, what, what to say and what to withdraw and what to hold back until the end, um, how to, how to um, um, structure a story so that it works, um, that kind of stuff you can do. But, but the instinct of the storyteller, I can't. And in 20 students, you may have one that will become a writer. And uh, the others will be writers, but they will probably be writers of nonfiction, or yeah. they will be teaching in a school or something like that. Exactly. Uh, you're related to Salvador Allende, who served as president of Chile in the early 1970s. Has politics played a role in your own life? Yes, because um, uh, of politics, uh, I had to leave my country. There was a military coup in 1973. My, my uncle, that was Salvador Allende, died during the coup. M millions of people were victims of the, of the repression in one way or another, and many, many left the country. I was one among them with my family. And I lived for 13 years in Venezuela uh, as a political exile. So um, I think I became a writer because I had to leave my country and I couldn't con continue with my job. I lost everything. And my first novel, The House of the Spirit, is like an attempt to recover all the world I had lost after the coup. Mm. Uh, so politics have always played an important role in my life and also women's issues. Mm. I've been very aware of the, of the plight of women and trying to help. Now that's, uh, I, I'd, I'd imagine, some of the work that you're doing with the Isabel Allende Foundation that you started in yeah, 1996. Exactly. What, exactly, that's what we do. What can you tell me what the foundation does? The foundation works with um, programs we don't create anything new. We, we support programs that already exist uh, that help women and girls in the areas of education, health care, and protection. We do it in several countries and always among the poorest of the poor. Mm. Well, uh, Ms. Allende, thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, do you want to give us a sense of what's coming up for you in the future? Who's coming up in the future? Yeah, any, any I, I have, working? I have another novel that I that I have to correct a little, but I think it's done. So that would probably be published next year in Spanish, but I don't I don't know when it will be published in, in English. Well, Ms. I don't have a title yet. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I uh, appreciate you talking with me. Well, thank you, man. And we do look forward to seeing you at the uh, National Book Festival. That's September 25th, 2010, on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., as always, free and open to the public. At the Library of Congress, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you so much for listening.